Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. If 2021 was the year of ransomware, then 2022 definitely should be called the year of DeFi hacks. What I'm wondering, is there any chance that 2023 can be the year that cybersecurity teams take their revenge? In this episode, we speak to two experts from the cyber risk team at Kroll, Chris Baylod, who's managing director of that team, and JC Roth, associate MD, about this possibility. Chris and JC walk us through the last 18 months of cyber incidents and ransomware ransomware and highlight the changing ransomware attack vectors and changes in the cyber insurance markets. I learned that companies are getting better at protecting themselves and becoming less likely to pay ransoms. For more on this topic and all things crypto, you better start planning your trip to New York for the Chainalysis Links Conference, which is happening April 4th and 5th. And get your tickets soon because I've extended the early bird purchase window by just a few weeks. Ticket prices will go up soon. You can find registration details in the show notes. Today we've got an exciting episode. While this year's been almost entirely focused on DeFi at the crypto crime headline level, we haven't forgotten about ransomware. Last year we christened 2021 as the year of ransomware actually here at Chainalysis. So we wanted to close out 2022 with our last episode with some friends from our partner Kroll. I've got Chris Ballad, Managing Director for Cyber Risk, and JC Roth, who leads his incident response team for crypto and cyber risk. Chris, JC, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Kroll is a, a large global firm, does a tremendous amount of work. But I suspect our listeners are not fully up to speed on the scope of your business. Chris, maybe you could kick us off with just giving some quick overview of, of who is Kroll, what are the things that you work on, and what should people recognize you for? Absolutely. Thanks so much, Ian. Kroll is a global entity. Most of us based here in the U.S., but on every continent, there's a presence. And Kroll Cyber is a division within Kroll. So there's more traditional investigations, valuations, bankruptcy support, all kinds of services that are offered through Kroll, the larger Kroll umbrella. But Kroll Cyber Risk is where I focus and where I sit. And we do a lot of different things in the cybersecurity space, which we have a team now over 600 strong. We'll do everything from pre-breach services. So that's the assessments, that's security training, things that make sure you're not in a breach in the first place, or at least help you to mitigate that risk, because we all also should know in this space. That's not something you can get to 100% on. And then we get into the incident response. We'll do getting things secured with restoring operations with crawl recovery services and the investigation. After that, we're able to support if there's data at risk and the notification stage of the game as well, if in fact that's also required. That's a brief thumbnail of what we do on my team in particular. We have five incident response teams, three specialty teams, including the blockchain cryptocurrency team. And what we do all day long is respond to people who are in trouble, try to help them out. JC is one of our brightest leaders based in Canada. And I'm going to brag because she isn't the best incident responder in Canada, hands down, who sees the incident right up close. 
That's a great transition. JC, what does it look like to lead an incident response team at Kroll? Walk us through a week in the life. That's a great question. And the answer is every day looks different. It really just depends. We are constantly thrown into new situations where we have to figure out new networks, new infrastructure, what the actual incident is. And they all can be very different in different situations, different ways and modes that even same groups are using to get into new networks. So I would say it's very exciting. Every day is different. Lots of thinking on your feet. But yeah, I love what I do and I'm very lucky to have a great team to work alongside me. I bet it's been a busy couple of years. It doesn't seem like the number of cyber incidents has gone down. <laughs> we always say, what are weekends? <laughs> <laughs> you know, most of the people listening to this podcast obviously have an interest in crypto, even if they're not working in the space daily. I'm curious, Chris, when you look at kind of the big trend, where did you start to see cryptocurrency come on the radar? Obviously, Chainalysis and Kroll have a partnership and collaborate on a number of, I think, these incident response projects. You're using some of our technology. But talk to me about where crypto first came on your radar as someone in the, in the cyberspace. Absolutely. So it's funny. I met Chainalysis even before I was at Crawl. We would get to know each other to some degree with the ransomware space. The necessary due diligence that goes into a payment of a ransom, making sure it's nobody who was on the OFAC list or anything like that. In my previous life, though, I wouldn't perform that work. I was counsel who was overseeing the response. Very certain that I didn't want to see what I look like in an orange jumpsuit. That was not going to be fun or have my clients in that particular situation. So that's really where it first intersected the cybersecurity and incident response space in my particular career. Then I really became more involved with actual incidents for cryptocurrency companies, supporting companies, so back-end support, vendors, third parties for exchanges, exchanges themselves. I was leading some of those incident responses as counsel, and since then I've continued that trend at crawl. It's a much smaller subset of incident response. That's one thing, Ian, I don't think people have a good sense of how many incidents there are out there at all. Just as a number, crawl handled 3,200 incident responses last year. A vast number of those were ransomware. 2021 was a very, very busy year. And I'd imagine, and having some insight into this through insurance company friends and counsel and things like that, we're not even the highest number of total incidents. So if you put the whole market together, I suspect you're seeing you know, well over 10, 12,000 incidents happening that are active intrusion, business email compromise where the victim has been actually compromised and has lost money. I think that the number's immense. Of that, a very small sliver is still in the crypto space, in the blockchain space. So a little bit of a good feeling. Now that said, everybody's got computers. Every manufacturer, every law firm, every CPA, not everybody's in crypto. So as a total of the crypto company, the blockchain company, proportionality, I think it may be a little more startling, but it's still a smaller number. Just so I understand that. So Kroll last year in 2021, 3,200 incident responses. I'm rounding down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> At least that many. So thousands, which I think if I'm doing my math right, puts you around about 
10 a day, every day of the year, which is a staggering amount of work for your team. And that's just Kroll. So other people who play a similar role across the ecosystem for incident response, probably similarly busy. That's a little bit mind-blowing. Now, you, your last point you were making there, saying that in terms of the incidents that you're involved with, not all of them are ransomware necessarily. So you've got some other compromise for information theft, I would guess. Perhaps other other reasons why you're called upon to help uh, resolve an incident, like a, a just a data breach where there's no demand for repayment potential. That's exactly right. JC, I think, has right now a couple of business email compromises on her team that she's working. So that's your standard. I I want to be careful when I say standard. That's your phishing attack where there's some sophistication to it and they get in between a transaction. Very often those groups are based in Africa, in Nigeria in particular, and they make more money than the ransomware actors year over year. According to the FBI, I think those stats are accurate, especially now that they've focused on the construction sector where why me $4 million is apparently par for the course. So they're having a very good year there. And JC, I think you've got some others as well, other than ransomware, like insider threat. Yeah, we see insider threats. So that would be maybe you have a disgruntled employee who left and you think that they took information. It could be even more sophisticated than that, where I think someone's running a side business and taking information out of your organization. We see all the different kinds of things, social media attacks, where someone's social media presence and identity has been taken over. We see even just like DDoSing, network intrusions, where maybe there hasn't been a ransomware incident, but there's been data theft. So it really varies. It just depends on the day. (laughs) And Ian, I'd say when you touch the crypto space in particular, it's not ransomware. These actors are there to steal the wallets or to steal money, coin. That's what they tend to do. Our involvement from a, an incident perspective, at least the things that I, I remember last year was not where crypto companies are necessarily being compromised, but because nearly all ransoms, I think, are demanded in cryptocurrency, either either Bitcoin or maybe a privacy token like Monero or something. I'm curious, like out of the 3,200 incidents you mentioned, like roughly which fall into the ransomware category versus some of the other breach categories. Do you have statistics on that? I know we've got statistics. I don't have them on me. And I should have them memorized by now. But it's always right around the 50% mark or a little higher are actually the ransomwares of various sizes. You know, sometimes clients all to go unnamed, of course, but sometimes I've got uh, 160,000 endpoints in an environment, very large, very public with government and international news covering the incident. Sometimes I've got a solo accounting firm who shares a computer with everyone else in the building. You know, So that can vary, but that's what it looks like. So JC, for people that maybe have been lucky enough to not experience one of these incidents and the the response and cleanup aftermath, walk us through what happens when you get the phone call. Company says, hey, we're we're in the middle of something. We think something bad is going on. Help. And then you get the phone call and you're kind of parachuted in or your team's parachuted in. What does that look like over the next 24, 48, 72 hours? What, What is your team actually working on? Yeah, that's a great question. So I always tell clients there's basically three things we're trying to do, three objectives and buckets you can look at the entire incident in. The first is always containment. So you've had someone, you know, walk through or break in through your front door. So we need to make sure that they're not still sitting in your house somewhere. So how we do that is we roll a sensor through the environment. I always try to explain it like to clients. If you think of the housing situation, it's like installing alarm systems in the house so that if someone is to break in again, you're going to know that they've stepped foot in the house. So that's step number one, making sure 
sure that we don't have bad guys sitting in the house and that there's no persistence mechanism set up. So for instance, let's just say for those who are maybe technical who are listening, that there's not a group policy that's set up pushing the ransomware binary out over and over again. So you restored a new clean backup and now it's encrypted again. Step number two is really going to be, again, if we think of the proverbial house, we got to make sure we change the lock on the door, that someone didn't steal your spare key, that you've gone around and checked all your windows, that they're not broken, that they're not left unlocked, and really closing those doors. And how we do this at Crawl is we give clients what we call a containment guide. It's really a step-by-step guide of how to go through your restoration process. Literally everything from what machines we suggest you turn on first that are going to help your business impact the best, to you know how you should be going through changing passwords and what that's got to look like. And we always tell clients this guide is based off of the thousands, as you just heard, of incidents that we work. It's the main ways we see actors set up persistence in networks. It's the main way we see them enter networks. So it's got security hardening tactics in it as well. Because I'll tell you, in the first, you know, 24 hours, sometimes we won't know what the entry point is because we have to go and collect all the different information to be able to build out that storyline. And that's the question everyone always has. Well, how can I bring things up and running if I don't know that I've closed the door? And we say, well, this is what you've got to do for now with the monitoring so that if we didn't get the door close, we're going to see that and then we can trace it back from that exact endpoint to help you get in a better situation. Third bucket is really the forensic investigation, which I think is what more traditionally people think of us as and what's more known. I always tell clients we have three forensic objectives of what we're trying to prove or disprove when we come into these situations. The first is really how did they get in if we can figure that out with the evidence available. The second is was there any access to data? So did the threat actor open up any files and folders while they were in your network? And then the last is really did they exfiltrate it? any data. So did they copy out your files and folders from your digital environment and take them into their own? Those are the questions that we try to answer. However, just due to the nature of the work and what we're doing, we really are building that full storyline of what was happening in the network. So we can usually tell much more granular details for those who are interested. So things like what computers they were spending the most time on, what malware was running and what it does, what user accounts they were using. So all of that is usually available, but just to give us very clear guidelines of what we're looking for, that's usually the three things that are most important what we're looking to achieve. I'm curious from maybe two years ago or any point in previous history relative to today, are the organizations you work with getting more sophisticated at protecting themselves? Like, are people getting better at security? (laughs) Or are you seeing the same paths of compromise over and over again? And you're laughing. So I'm guessing maybe I might know the answer, but I'll let you take it. Well, we're actually laughing because we were just having this conversation. So the answer is yes and no, which is confusing. But I would say beginning of this year, I would actually say yes. And why I say that is we did see ransomware to some degree definitely died down a little bit the kinds of actors that we saw changed. And what I mean by that is the threat landscape really reflected what we saw in almost like 2018, where it was groups using things like phishing emails again to get in, sophisticated phishing emails, but still phishing emails and banking trojans and RDP and kind of more simplistic attacks to what we were seeing versus like supply chain (laughs) compromises and, you know, brand new CVEs that were zero days. So pretty big difference between those two things. And with that, what was very interesting is what we would have seen in 2018 really taking down 
down organizations and causing huge business interruption, it definitely still was causing business interruption. But we were seeing that clients were coming in who had EDR, which is endpoint detection and response with sensors in their environment, and seeing threat actors having to figure out ways to get around this because they were like, oh no, this is uh, stopping my attack. So we saw things like ESXi hosts getting encrypted, which honestly is a forensic pain and not fun to deal with. But we did see those tactics shift and change versus what we were seeing in 2018. So I would say the answer to the question is yes, we did see security bolster to some degree. I think organizations were listening. They were learning from, you know, previous years. But with that, I think threat actors, you know, when there's a will, there's a way. And I think we did see them adapt and change and grow with us. Yeah, so the tactics have shifted in order to address the kind of like, we built a wall and so now they're either figuring out how to climb over or walk around the wall to to get inside the company. Right. I think even if they're getting through the wall, there's layers of restoring everything, yeah. right? There, there's layers of resilience that there just weren't there before. And it's interesting. It's a, it, This is a wild year to talk about. 2021 was more of a standard year. This year, you had the confluence of two really big events. One, the lesser known event, and that is the insurance carriers took a beating in 2021. If you think about how insurance works, cyber insurance, but insurance in general, there's a premium that comes in and the guess is you're not going to pay out the entire policy. Because of the nature of ransom, you could end up spending all of your money at the entire policy on one claim all of a sudden, which is not the way any other insurance usually works. And the threat actors we now know were looking for the insurance policy so they could tailor their demands or their negotiating strategy to those too. So there was a retrenchment, less policies written. So in 2021, it was really hard to get get a policy comparatively. And if you could get at all, so we had more uninsureds who couldn't pay a ransom, for example, and less targets, therefore, that could actually end up paying. That's going to change in 2023. We'll talk about that too, I'm sure, in the point of the podcast here. I mean, it's fascinating. I want to go back to the comment you made about the insurance situation. So most large companies, I think, have an incident response retainer in place with Kroll or an organization similar to Kroll, where when something bad happens, they get your expertise, JC's team parachutes in. But it sounds like many organizations also would purchase an insurance policy. So if there's any damages where they need to buy new technology or equipment to replace something that was damaged in the incident, I guess, or potentially pay out a ransom, the insurance carrier was actually on the hook for that payment. Is that pretty common, I guess, or it was going into 2021? Going into 2021, that's correct. It was a very free market in in the sense that it was pretty easy to get a lower premium, decent dollar amount on your cyber insurance. You know, everyone wanted to write cyber as a hot new item for the longest time. And really 2021 was the reckoning. (laughs) Yeah, I recall some of the big insurance companies kind of making big splashy announcements about how huge growth area, big opportunity for them. We're now in the world of digital insurance. But then 2021 happened, ransomware claims went through the roof, and it turned out to be not exactly the profitable growth area that the insurance carriers were hoping for. So 
so as a result, a number of them pulled out of the market, right? They just stopped Accurate. writing policies entirely? Accurate. Yeah. Well, they revisited the method. They'd write the policies, tightened up underwriting controls. Underwriting is that process whereby the potential insured is vetted for and then offered coverage. All of that was tightened up. And now at the end of 2022 and in more into 2023, you're seeing new policy effective dates, especially at January 1, where you're actually seeing some of those large carriers even come back into the market in a big way, albeit with lessons learned. That's going to be make it all very interesting. But let's just real fast, though, just to clarify what the role to is of insurance yeah. in the in some of these, because I think that's really an interesting point is you had a lot of placement with the experts would happen through the cyber insurance pre-vetted panel. So Prol is on all the panels type of thing and it goes through the vetting process. And that was a way of making sure you didn't end up with, you know, somebody who says, oh, yeah, I know cybersecurity. And really all they know how to do is go in and change the hard drive out of your computer, which is not a great look for things, especially when data is then stolen and you don't know what data is stolen until it's published by a threat actor. So there's that piece. But there was also the piece that even in a large company, it's part of risk management, trying to defray some of the cost. You have to be able to say that to investors, to the public, if it's publicly traded, that there's a risk management plan to defray the cost of the crawls, the chain analysis, but there's really a that kind of risk management plan to it as well. It's paying some of those costs, not just the cost of the new computer, but helping to make sure there's not a just a huge loss all around. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I'm curious, you mentioned one of the services you provide is pre-incident where you're doing a security assessment, you're doing training. So are you actually helping companies get ready to be able to be suitable for a policy to be written? Is that part of the work you'll do? Underwriting support. That's right. And my um, background, though, I'm an absolute tech geek, but even though the tech is my first love, I was an insurance coverage lawyer forever. There is that piece of the puzzle that we do that really picked up in 2022 that we work with brokers or insureds or sometimes even with the carrier. We have, There's some very innovative carriers, especially who are trying to make the crypto space better, safer, be able to show that it's a controllable risk, it's a knowable risk. And so they've brought in Crawl as a part of that process to not just to vet, but also then to make recommendations and suggestions to make it a, a risk that makes sense. So there isn't going to be a lot of claims at the end of the day. I mean, it's important work. Like security is hard, right? It's I mean, really there's hard. so many different <laughs> vectors. I'm curious, JC, you know, we talked about companies getting better. You touched on the attackers also shifting tactics from maybe more sophisticated to less sophisticated. I'm sure you have some exciting or interesting stories that you could share. Uh, maybe some of the more outlandish breach tactics <laughs> that you've come across this year. Yeah. So some of the more interesting ones, I actually did a full presentation on this just this year, is actually the shift to some degree just this year from business to personal, which that was very, very interesting to experience. Uh, and also kind of scary as a someone in this space to even just think about the impact of personal breaches or individual breaches. So what that really meant was seeing the kind of morphine of a business email compromise. So if you think of your email, if you think of what you have access to via your email, it really is sort of your digital passport. It's how you are able to access pretty much everything on the internet, right? It asks for your username and your password, and it's usually your email. And I think with a lot of everyday users, there's a lot of password reuse that goes on as well. So one of the matters I had that was more interesting that we responded to this year was actually one where that exact scenario happened. They got into an email, and 
really what they did, they didn't even have to guess the passwords for all the other accounts of social media. You know what they did? They went on each one and they wrote, forgot my password. Well, what happens when you click that link? Sends you your password refresh or your new password to reset to your email address. And they just reset them all. They reset every password. They changed all of the different, you know, security questions, whatever that was available to use as a secondary means of authenticating who you are and took over every single account in the main email address. So that was a really interesting one to respond to. It was really interesting to see the impact I think we sometimes forget how much personal information and I don't mean just business personal can be in your social media accounts, can be in your email as well, even just how much information is available about you, your leases, where you live, you know, <laughs> what your last 10 Amazon orders were, whatever, all of that is, is available about you and seeing the impact of that and how threat actors were able to use that to really impact this person's life and cause complete chaos in their life and having LinkedIn messaging their family members. There's already that trust too between those accounts that I think people don't think about as well. If I were to send, you know, Chris a link on LinkedIn, it wouldn't be abnormal. We talk back and forth all the time. So he's probably going to be much more likely to potentially click on something that I were to send him because of that trust. You're actually making me sweat a little bit, uh, just <laughs> even thinking about that. And what's funny is I, I've been caught in you know many of the data breaches that have happened at this point. Oh, social security compromise, data birth compromise. I kind of roll my eyes at it, unfortunately. Like it's out there. You know, it's in Pastebin or it's in all sorts of dark web forums. Mm -hmm. You want to buy my PII, go ahead. It's just not like a thing that I really get worried about. But what you just described is terrifying. <laughs> it definitely so, is. <laughs> that is the number one vector for cryptocurrency incidents is the, especially LinkedIn. I can't tell you the number of times I've seen that even as a persistence mechanism where we get the threat actor out and then they'll try to come back in by essentially LinkedIn phishing or social engineering attack. They absolutely love that. <laughs> oh boy. And you know, it's interesting. You said that you get the password reset cycle where you get an email and then you have to go through a, a revalidation of a user. I've noticed a lot of services have gone to this magic link tactic where they just email you a link that logs you straight in. Like you don't even really use a password. You don't have to supply any other secondary identifying or, or two-factor auth experience. It's uh, immediate access to the service. Terrifying. <laughs> Not good. Yeah. For everybody listening, Go out there, have unique passwords per service. Go check, have I been pawned? Like, see yes. if you've been in any of these, like, email and, and other data breaches. It's a great service. Multi-factor, I cannot say it enough. Multi-factor authentication and truly not just multi-factor where you get a text. It needs to be something like Authenticator because we've seen, and Chris can probably speak to this, on, especially on the crypto side where we see SIM swapping, where they'll literally just call up again. They have all your PII. you got to remember when you're in someone's email account, it's pretty easy to know everything about them. And they'll just call up your phone provider and change the number. I lost my phone. I need you to put it on this new one. And now they get your two-factor. So just important things to keep in mind. How often is SIM swapping happening, by the way? That's the thing that I hear a lot about. I'm like, that's pretty technical. That's a lot of work. Is that a common uh, activity? So it's common in the blockchain companies' attacks. The threat actors who do that, they already have a good sense of the environment. Very often, a lot of the indicators even look like insider threat when we start. But it's because very often there's these are startup companies that started using Google Workspace or G Suite, moved into the Azure environment, and never disabled <laughs> G Suite. And I say that not so anybody recognizes themselves, but 
I can't tell you the number of companies. That is the exact path that I have seen. That is super, super common. So if your listeners are recognizing themselves there. It's not because I'm talking out of school. <laughs> it's because that is a really common path. And then they SIM swap the phone that's tied to the Google account. And now all of a sudden, there's no signal. Ah, I don't know why there's no signal. And it looks like there's nothing, no connection. But in fact, that's the attack starting. That is really common in crypto space. It is not common in ransomware. Ransomware, they have a much easier path that they've really come to. There's the CVEs are the big, are yep. the really big note here. And at Shodan.io is a dollar for a lifetime membership right now. It's, that's the uh, the search engine of vulnerabilities and the internet of things. They love it. They'll just look for something that's out of patch and they'll run the exploit. You get a lot of cheap cameras or other yeah. smart devices, smart lights that are in, in your home or your, your office experience. And once it's manufactured, that manufacturer is never doing a software update. So if they shipped a vulnerability or a vulnerability was found post-manufacturing, it's probably never getting fixed. But it's a big hole in the network if, it, if it's on the internet, right? Yeah, well, even think about firewalls. I mean, it's not that these are cheap devices at the business entity, at the corporate level. These yeah. are, and it's not that I'm saying there's one brand that's better than the other. There's a vulnerability in every single one at some point. If you're out of patch, it may not be that big of a deal if you're keeping Microsoft Word running for an entire organization, right? You may not have time to constantly check and see, well, is this firewall brand or that firewall brand out of patch? You just don't have time. Mm -hmm. And if you're a little bit out of patch, is it that big of a deal? Well, it is. If there's a remote code execution, they come in and drop any desk somewhere. Now you could patch. And what have you done? You've just created a different door. You just patched the door they came in through. I want to wrap the episode looking forward a little bit. Obviously, we're this is our last episode of 2022 as we're recording here just before the holidays. What should we be looking out for in 2023, Chris? Like, I feel like the government in the U.S. Is, has made huge progress in terms of allocating resources resources, trying to raise awareness around the ransomware threat, particularly as it relates to critical infrastructure, as well as business compromise that we've talked about a lot today. What's on your radar? What do you see your team is going to be working on as you go into the new year? And, and what should listeners be keeping an eye out for? Well, I think that we're going to see a sharp spike. The threat actors read the news. They look at the insurance policies. We know that from their playbooks. They know there's going to be a shift back to money that they can try to access. I think we are going to see a sharp increase. We are seeing a sharp increase. I don't know if JC has slept in the last few days. Her team has been wildly busy. We continue to be wildly busy. We're seeing that sharp increase as, again, as money is needed and the value of crypto has gone down that they're holding. So I think we're going to see a sharp increase, at least in the short term. I think we will see additional issues around insurance coverage. Not all policies will be created equally. So third-party breaches will continue to be big. And I can't stress that enough. You can have the strongest, most fortified network in the world, but if you've allowed a vendor with a service account and an API key past the fortress walls, then you might as well just let the threat actor in the front door. Uh, I've seen that a lot. I think we're going to see that a lot more. They're going to target less secure entities and pivot. I think that's going to be it. continue to be a really big increase. The governments have a real issue with trying to get their arms around this because private sector is private sector. 
sector. You can't force a company to allocate its budget a certain way. Security has to be a separate item than the team that keeps Microsoft Word running, so to speak. So I think that's a bit about what we're going to see. I think we're all going to be really busy. JC, though, I think has uh, some views from the front line, too, going into the new year. Yeah, I think we're going to see the continued efforts for data exfiltration. I think we're going to see things shift a little bit with the popularity of EDR growing and being such an effective tool in networks. I think we're going to see a shift as more of like the email space, BEC is becoming more of an issue where they're using them in a way that looks more like what we're familiar with ransomware, where it's stealing inboxes, stealing data uh, and using that and trying to target that for organizations to make payments. I also think we're going to see it spread into accounts and be something that they're using to take over. Like even just thinking about it, if you took over someone's marketing account and start posting, <laughs> you know, hacker videos, how horrible that would be to your reputation. And in all honesty, how hard it is to get social media accounts back and how long it takes puts a lot of pressure on organizations as well. So I think we're going to see some morphine in that section as well. We actually saw this not even on account compromise, but impersonated accounts on Twitter when they rolled yep. out that. <laughs> The blue checkmark program, I think there was a pharmaceutical company who had a huge stock drop and actually one of the big defense contractors, I think also suffered a temporary stock drop as investors thought they were getting legitimate news from the company and it turned out to be somebody having a laugh. Well, actually, you know what? That brings up one point we haven't talked about, but I'm going to predict for going into a recession year. We keep hearing there's going to be a recession. Well, let's pretend that's accurate for a moment for the sake of argument. What we saw in 2021 was a sharp increase in insider threats. Employees who said, you know, I have no loyalty to this company and I want to hurt the company, stealing data, doing harm to the company. And that's that was a part of our investigation. Those investigations picked way up as the market was soft in 2021 in so many ways. I think if we'd see a recession, insider threat again, it's time to really look closely at that NIST 800 guidance about at least privileges and account mm -hmm. management, because I think we're going to see a big increase in that. Good point. All right. Well, JC, you've, you've made some recommendations, like everybody should be using multi-factor authentication, not just text message. But I'm curious, any other tips for folks as we kind of round out the episode where you see consistent things that aren't done that if they had been, you know, companies or individuals could better protect themselves? What's your top two or three things you recommend to all your friends? Let me try and think of some things that are more unique. I think a big one is having proper logging in place. So making sure those things are turned on. We always compare logs. And I think this is a good example is like having cameras in your house. So if you have no camera, how are you supposed to see what happened <laughs> if someone robbed you? Uh, and then the second one that I think is a little unique that you might not hear all the time, because I know MFA, everybody hears all the time. Maybe think about archiving your inboxes so that if someone does come in and do a business email compromise or something like that, you're limiting the scope of data for something like data mining or what could be at risk to hopefully like, you know, six months to a year rather than seven years of data that we have to go through. Because I can tell you that cost is exponentially different. Passwords, making sure that you are using unique passwords on every single account. I know it can be really, really hard to remember something like a password manager where you can just have it auto-generate. I mean, even Apple has Keychain, I think it's called. It's really helpful in making unique passwords. That would be something I would recommend for your everyday users as well. Amazing An MFA. Advice. Yeah, MFA. that's right. <laughs> Multi-factor auth on everything. Yes. JC, Chris, this has been awesome. We could go all day long. I really enjoyed it. Great way for us to, to end the year here on Public Key. Thank you so much. Thank you Thank so much. Thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. <laughs> hey there. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of Public Key. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and our newly launched TikTok and completely revamped YouTube pages, where we share our favorite moments captured in this podcast and other great content from the Chainalysis team. Last year, we had some of our public key super fans join me for a special behind the scenes session. We captured some audio. Let's hear what one of Chainalysis software engineers, Fawaz Alhanaki, has to say about why he enjoys public key. Hey, my name is Fawaz Alhanaki, and I'm an engineer here at the clustering team at Chainalysis. And I knew that I made the right decision coming to Chainalysis when I saw our CEO, Michael, talk about the clustering work that the team that I joined had worked on the past few months. It's incredible to get a chance to work in a company that drives direct impact in the crypto industry. Working with crypto, I always try to keep up to date with crypto news and information, and the podcast has definitely been a great way to do that.